0: Amen, amen. Well, welcome. We are in week two of our series, Christ, Culture, in the Church, and also week two of having weekend services. That means last night, if you don't know this, last night we had a Saturday night service, second time in a row doing that. And the first time we did it, which was just eight days ago, we had 300 and I think 70 people come out. We were really excited about that. And then I kind of thought, though, I thought, well, maybe people came one time and then it's not going to work and they're they're not going to come back and they're going to go back to Sunday morning or they're going to go some other time. And so last night I thought, well, who's going to show up? We had over 450 people show up to our Saturday night service. (laughs) I don't know where they're all coming from. Obviously, if you look around there, uh, many have left this service and moved to Saturday night. And we want to just continue to encourage you as we head into the fall, if you have the flexibility and availability to go to either of our night services, Sunday night service at five o'clock, we made it easy. Sunday night at five, or Saturday night at five, right? You don't have to go, what time is it, both nights? Same time, Saturday five, Sunday five. Secondly, I wanna tell you guys that we had our weekender this weekend. I've got some pictures behind me uh, from the weekender. Now, if you're new, okay, let me tell you what the weekender is. Uh, we, we had about 150 people go through our weekender. It was the largest weekender in the history of our church. And you may go, what is the weekender? And that's a fair question, because we talk about it a lot, right? Uh, we, we had someone ask one time, the weekender, you don't have to like spend the night, right? This isn't, it's like, no, 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 no. no. It's a Friday night. You go home, okay? It's not not a sleepover. You come back Saturday morning. Well, what it is, though, it's not just an event. We don't do really events here for the sake of doing events. We do events. We're not an event driven church. We are a relationship driven church. So it's really for you to relationally meet the staff and meet other people. Uh, But some people go, is uh, is the Weekender just about connecting people to serving and community and all those things? Well, it does that, but it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Some people go, is the Weekender about membership? It's. You know, more than that, not less than that, you can become a member. But here's what The Weekender is, and I just want to be super clear because we've been doing this for five years now, so it's actually becoming, you know, I'm kind of verbal processing here, but I'm, it's becoming more and more clear to me what The Weekender is. The Weekender is our on-ramp and our inroad road into discipleship in the life of our church. That if you're here and you're, and you're new, welcome, you're a seeker, you're a skeptic, you're checking it out, you visit us a few times, you're watching online, you don't know. You're like, I don't know. I want to learn about this church. I don't know, you know what I believe yet and if I'm going to get connected. But if you've been coming around for a while and you've just decided, and I don't know why, you just decided, I'm never coming to a weekender, right? This often happens with husbands and then their wives get frustrated with them, right? I'm never coming to a weekender. It's like, look, I don't know how to say this any other way. Then we, respectfully, we are not the church for you. We are the church for anybody, but we're not the church for everybody. Because if you don't come to our weekender, then we won't be able to disciple you. We won't be able to invest in you. We won't be able to connect your life and your family to God's global purposes for the world through the local church in a timely, meaningful, and strategic way. So what I wanna do is I wanna take a moment, I wanna pray for the 150 people who came out, gave their Friday night, gave their Saturday morning. Of that 113, I know I'm giving you a lot of numbers here, 113 of them said that they want to be all in and actually want to be members of our church. I'm just telling you, I can't tell you what that does to the kids' ministry and how it invigorates them. I can't tell you how that encourages our staff. I can't tell you how that strengthens our community groups and how that helps to forward the mission, the ministry, and the message of Jesus in our city. Let's take a moment, pray for them, and then we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians. Lord, I thank you for the men and women, the families that came on out, and gave a Friday night and gave a Saturday morning, I met many of them, many different stories, many different life stages, many just moving here from, from different places in the world, many many only going to be here for a short period of time, a couple of years as they go to medical school or as they uh, go to grad school or as they take a job. Um, I thank you for, for the different families and the different couples and the different individuals. Lord, We ask that you would strengthen our local church for the good of our city, Lord. We don't have ultimately a church vision, we have a city vision, Lord. We ask that you would do something great in us so that you would do something even greater through us and beyond us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can type to, turn to, swipe to, scroll to. Flip two, whatever you want to do, get to 1 Corinthians chapter one. We're going to cover a lot of content this morning, okay? We're going to start in chapter one, verse 18, if you'll find, uh, and I'll meet you there in just a minute, okay? 1 Corinthians one, verse 18. We're going to cover the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two. We're going to cover a lot of content this morning, but let me remind everybody what's going on. There's this guy named the Apostle Paul, and I hope by now, if you've been coming around, hopefully you know who the Apostle Paul is. You didn't learn about him in high school, you should have. You didn't learn about him in college, you should have. We're talking about top 10 most influential people who've ever lived We've got 13 of his letters uh, in in the New Testament. The the New Testament is made up in large part because God's highly relational and God's highly personal. The New Testament is a lot of personal letters. Paul writes 1 Corinthians. He writes it from Ephesus. And and here's what Paul would always do. Paul would always go to a city, and and this is just good to know, okay? He would go to a city and he'd plant a church. And after he planted that church, he would pastor it for a little bit. People would come to Christ, he'd pastor it. Usually somewhere between 18 months and three years, he'd pastor a church. Give it a lot of attention. And then he would pass it on. So think about it that way. He plants, he pastors, and then he passes it on. He gives it to leaders. And then, from a distance, he has to deal with problems, right? That's what he does, and so he writes about them. Now, every church has problems. I want you to understand this. If you're new, maybe you're not a Christian, you're a seeker and skeptic, I wanna tell you about Christians. Christians are not perfect people. We are forgiven people. That's what we are. And so the, what the church is, the church is more like a hospital. It's a place that you go because you know you got problems. <laughs> It's a place you know because you want to go. Get, we, 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 are a, we are a place of humble hypocrisy, okay? <laughs> we, we know that we're struggling. We know that we're stumbling. We, we're, more, we're trying to be as aware of our sins and our struggles and our weaknesses as possible. I know all the things that are wrong with this church. I'm very aware of them, and I want to talk about them openly. And if somebody points out something in my life, I want to learn, and I want to grow, and I want to repent, and that's what the church does, well, last week we saw that Paul talked about unity and division. And it was his first thing, right? Because we talked about this. I won't re-preach that sermon. But um, if you're not unified in your marriage and in your family, you can't deal with anything else. There's just too many other problems. You have to first get unified. So that's what he talked about. Now, here's what he's going to talk about today. And we'll see this in verse 18. He's going to talk about how crazy, how, what, what Christians believe and how crazy it seems to the world. That's what he's going to do. That's the whole message. He's going to be like, guys, listen, it's foolishness what the Christian message is to the world. I mean, literally, the, the, the translation is moronic, idiotic, mindless. That's the language. He's going to say, here's, because remember, this series is called Christ, Culture, and the Church, and what we're always doing is we're looking at what, is, what does the church believe? What does the culture believe? How does that interact? That's what Paul's doing in this whole letter. And he's, and he's saying, guys, listen, Christians love the cross. If you don't know that, that that's, that's, I mean, we, I remember I brought some Duke students one time to a worship service, and I thought they were going to be overwhelmed by the preaching. They were actually overwhelmed by the songs we were singing. And they were not Christians. They had never been in a church before. We get in the car. They say, why are we singing songs about a bloody cross? Why are we? I mean, do you understand? It's nothing but the blood? Washed in the blood? I mean, this is weird. This is, so, so Christians believe, this is what Paul says, Christians believe crazy things. They're true. Christians believe crazy things. The world's going to think it's crazy, but we have to talk about the cross. Right? and Now, listen, I, I don't know if you can remember back when you were not a Christian and how you viewed Christians. I remember, I'm over at my friend's house. I lived, I lived in his neighborhood. He was a middle schooler. He told me he was born again. I had no idea what that meant. Sounded, sounded weird. I remember him looking at me, and, I, and now I, I, I feel compassion because I think he was trying to share the gospel with me. And he said, you got to get saved. And I'm thinking, saved from what? We live in the suburbs. <laughs> I remember another kid in middle school, he, he had a shirt on. And I get it now. I didn't get it. I wasn't a Christian. If you don't know this, I, I'm a recovering Catholic. <laughs> uh, I, I, became, I became a Christian at 16 years old. I, um, I grew up as a nominal Catholic, and, uh, and I remember a, a kid. He had a shirt on, and it said "sinner" on the front of it. I thought that's a strange shirt. And then on the back of it, it said "forgiven." And I, I, I mean, I get it now. I didn't get it then. Or let me ask you this: Have you ever been sharing the gospel, the main message of Christianity, and like there's part of you? Maybe it was maybe it was 50% of you. Maybe it was 10% of you sometimes maybe 75% of you, and you, you go like this. This is crazy. What I'm saying is crazy. I mean, let's try it out. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. It's like, well, people go, the natural response to that is, virgins don't have kids. And the answer is, you're right, except for once. <laughs> right? And then you say, well, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. In fact, it was God become man, 100% God, 100% man, he lives a perfect life. And people go, no, 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 no. People don't live perfect lives. And the answer is, one person did, one time. But then it gets even stranger, right? We actually believe that Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross at Golgotha 2,000 years ago, changes my whole life? It's like, okay, so you're telling me that what a Galilean poor peasant who was a blue-collar carpenter and died a criminal's death in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, long before you were born, that that impacts your whole life? Or, did Jesus Christ rose from the dead? It's like, well, dead people stay dead. Normally they do. (laughs) 99.9999% of the time they do. One time it didn't. Or what we believe about the future. We believe that Jesus Christ will return visibly, bodily, from the sky, riding a horse with a tattoo on his leg. That's what the Bible says. And so you start to feel crazy. So what I want you to see is Paul, the apostle Paul who gave his whole life, who suffered more than any, well, most Christians will ever suffer. Paul is going to explain this. And here's, I'll just tell you the whole message because I think this is so encouraging. He's saying two things. I want you to emphasize the cross and I want you to trust the spirit. That's the whole message. Will you, let me ask you this today. We're gonna get the message, but would you have the courage? This is what I'm gonna ask you at the end. Would you have the courage in your life to emphasize the cross of Christ? To emphasize Christ crucified in your conversations with non-Christians, though it sounds crazy. And would you be so humble? Would you have the courage to emphasize the cross of Christ? Would you be humble enough to trust the Spirit of God? It's humbling, right? Ministry is doing what only the Holy Spirit can do. We can not It's not synthetic. We can't manufacture it. Amen. The Holy Spirit has to move. With that said, I want us to look together at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, if you'll turn with me there. First Corinthians 1, 18 says this. For the word, or when some translations say the message, For the word of the cross, and we're going to talk about this, that's what I just said, is folly, insane, unreasonable, empty-headed, like a maniac. That's kind of the whole idea. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to non-Christians. It's foolish. It's the dumbest thing they've ever heard, and they can't believe you're giving your whole life to it. Life is short. You only get to live once. You're going to give your whole life to this? is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, we look at the cross and it's the power of God. It's what changes and transforms our marriages and our lives and our destinies and our legacies and our eternities. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. I want to talk about, first of all, it's interesting that Christianity, I I don't want us to assume anything together today, I want us to think for a second, why is the Christian message a message of the cross? Because Jesus did a lot of things. I mean, Jesus had a healing, teaching, preaching, ministry. That's a good way to think about what Jesus did, right? He comes, and he does a lot of healing, and he feeds 5,000, and he you know, makes the blind see and the paralyzed walk, and there's, uh, he walks on water. There's a lot of things that he teaches a lot. He gives a sermon on the mound. He, just, he does this amazing teaching. So why do we call it the message of the cross? It's because Jesus Christ came to die. That the cross is what is central, even in his own mind, all of the gospels spend at least half of the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of those gospels spend half of their time talking about the last week of Jesus' life. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been described as passion narratives, that's that's the narrative of the cross, passion narratives with extended introductions. That's what it is. it's a symbol though, right? Symbols are really powerful. So he's saying it's a message of the cross. We have a symbol, the cross, right? And we, uh, uh, Symbols are so powerful they can divide a whole nation. Watch, the MAGA hat, it's a symbol. The Black Lives Matter fist, it's a symbol. The swastika, it's a symbol. The Confederate flag, it's a symbol. The rainbow flag, it's a symbol you know how powerful symbols are because there's so much behind it, right? There's a whole message and there's a whole movement behind a symbol, right? And this is, by the way, this is why brands and logos work. Why do you buy the same shirt, it's twice as much because it has a Nike swoosh on it? Because of what it communicates. It communicates I'm athletic. (laughs) Right? We love to w- wear expensive outerwear even if we never go outside. Um, and so, um, you know, and so, so it, now the, the, it's the symbol, right? Now, what is the cross in history? The cross was a, and you know this, but it's helpful to think about it because we, we, today we see the cross and it's on a gold necklace, or we're used to seeing the cross because you see it in, uh, in churches. Uh, the cross was an instrument of death and execution. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. It was the most painful way to kill a person. Uh, all, uh, it was an instrument of, it would be like us having, uh, wearing a necklace and it has a uh, lethal injection needle hanging off the end of it. Or us wearing a necklace and it has a, uh, an electric chair hanging off the end of it. I mean, that, that's what it would communicate. It was, an instru- it was an instrument of death. It was so shameful that you could not kill a Roman citizen by crucifixion. That's why Paul was not crucified. And it was so shameful, it was always done completely naked. So, you know, you always see the crucifixion Jesus has a loincloth. Nope. No crucifixions, no loincloths. It was so it was so painful and so gross that they would when they on rare occasions when they would crucify women, they would crucify them backwards or in reverse so that you would not see a woman's face being crucified. Because it was that gross and painful. And and then Paul says, "This is our message?" This is it, guys. That's what we got. We talk about we lift up a bloody cross and we talk about what it means. And this is what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, when I am lifted up. What is he's talking about? He's talking about exalted and the cross is talked about. When the cross is talked about and I am lifted up, he says, I will draw all men to myself. Well, look what he says in verse 18 and 19. He actually says the cross is God's wisdom. Look, I want to read this to you. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, to non-Christians, Right? If we went to the center of Wake Forest University and we preached the message of the cross, most people there are going to think it's absolute foolishness. If we went into the center of downtown and we gathered, uh, downtown Winston-Salem or downtown Charlotte or downtown New York City and we gathered everyone, we told them the message of the cross, they're going to think it's foolishness. He said, but to those, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So one of the things that Paul's gonna say is that the cross is God's wisdom, but it's the exact opposite of human wisdom, right? And so you have to understand what is wisdom. Wisdom is different than information and knowledge. This is a good way to think about life. There's information, there's knowledge, and then there's wisdom. Now we live in the information age, right? One study I read said that um, we are now taking in five times more information daily than our parents did when they were our age right and it's overwhelming this is why a lot this, there's a lot of reasons people are anxious and depressed one of the reasons that some of you are anxious and depressed is you cannot and it's understandable you cannot handle the information overload in your life your soul was not created for this much bad information all the time you can't handle knowing how all of your facebook friends are doing and who's doing better and who's doing worse okay and you we cannot handle the immediate nature of information it's always a breaking news alert it's always a notification right and so what he's saying is there's, there's information, then there's knowledge. Knowledge is the collection and organization of information. And so if you're a doctor, if you're a dentist, or if you're a lawyer, if you're an engineer, what you have, you may not have wisdom, but what you have is knowledge. That's what you have. In fact, what, what most people do when they go to college, they trade in their youth for knowledge. That's what you do. Hey, I'll trade in my youth. Doctor's are a perfect example of this. I'll trade in my youth. I'll give you four years and then I'll give you another four years for medical school and then I'll give you another three years for residency and then I'll give you another two years for, for fellowship. And I get out and what am I? I'm old. <laughs> right, but what did I trade in? I traded in my youth. This is what people do. This is, you have to articulate these things. People trade in their youth for knowledge. Okay, great. Well, now I have a discipline and a degree. And there's a small part of the world I know. And that's it. And I know this really, really well and it makes me valuable to other people. Well, great. That's called knowledge. That's not necessarily wisdom. And we know this because people who are very smart do very dumb things, right? You'll see people, you'll, you'll see people Let's pick on doctors for a second. You're like, you are like such an amazing surgeon, but I don't understand why, you, why you're leaving your few, four beautiful kids for a woman half your age. You're so smart, but you're missing something. Wisdom is a deeper idea. Wisdom is how the world really works. It's, it, wisdom is how do I really live in the world in a way that's good for me, good for those I love, good for me now, and good for me forever. That's wisdom. Very, very hard. And what what he's saying is there's there's going to be two types of wisdom. And he's going to say that the wisdom of God cannot be discovered by man. Look, that's what he's saying. In verse 20, he's basically saying God's wisdom cannot be discovered by man. It has to be disclosed by God. You cannot find it through speculation. You can only find it through God's revelation. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? That's what Paul's saying. Where is the person with more degrees than Fahrenheit? Where's the person? Where's the person at the Ivy League schools? Where are the really smart people? Did they figure out the gospel message? No. And then he says, okay, where's the scribe? That stands for all of the religious people. Did all of the religions in the world discover the gospel? No, they discovered the exact opposite. All the religions about working our way to God. The gospel is God's wisdom. It's about God working his way to man. And then it says, where is the debater of this age? Those were the public figures. Those were the celebrities. Those were the Bill Maher's of the world. It's like they're so smart, they're so in public, they're dealing with the ideas of the age, and they don't get the gospel. And then he says this, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Then look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So basically he's saying, through human wisdom, you can't find God's wisdom. We are thankful for science, but the scientist cannot discover the gospel through science. He can know that God exists because he can see that the world's created and orderly, right? The lawyer cannot discover God through the law, although he can find out that there is good and bad, but he can't find the gospel through the law. This is what it's saying. We are so thankful for smartphones. I'm so thankful that I can get on a a plane in Charlotte and be in California in four and a half hours. I'm thankful for air conditioning. I'm thankful for indoor plumbing. I'm thankful for all the modern, I'm thankful for the internet. Those things are great blessings, but we do not know God through them. We cannot discover God through them. He says this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I want to talk for a few minutes because I want us to get this, the difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. The difference between human wisdom and divine wisdom. Human wisdom tells you this. And I'm gonna say this and you're gonna know this is what human wisdom tells you. In other words, this is what they would say is how you live in the world. This is what's best for you. Best for you now, best for you forever. Here's what they would say. You are the most important person in the universe. And the best thing you could do is just care for yourself. That's the world's wisdom. What is, what is God's wisdom? God is the most important person in the universe. And the best thing that you could do is worship him. I want you to understand that the world's wisdom will tell you, every advertisement is telling you this, the problem is outside of you, the solution is inside of you. That's the exact opposite of God's wisdom, right? The problem is outside of you, the solution is inside of you. So the, the problem is your husband. The problem is your job. The problem is how your parents raise you. The problem is your boss. The problem is your friends. The problem is you're a victim. All, it's like you and I wish the problem was outside of us. Right? And then, and then all spirituality is to look inside, right? Look inside. You see, find the answers. Look deeper into yourself. It's like, you're not going to find what you want there. The, the, here's what the gospel says. The problem is inside of you, and the solution is outside of you. We would have never known that otherwise. The problem is me. Everywhere I go, there I am. The problem is my narcissism and my sinfulness and my selfishness, and my arrogance, and my pride, and my willful blindness, and the answer is outside of me. It's what God has done in time, and history, and the events of Jesus Christ's life. The world will tell you, listen, here's what faith is. Faith is is about private feelings, and never share it. That's, that's, That's the wisdom of the world of faith. It's like, well, sorry, that's the exact opposite. Faith is personal, but public, and it's about facts. The world will tell you everything is about here and now. So get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, okay? <laughs> Something like that. Don't let anyone else have it. Where we, we, Christians uniquely have an eternal perspective. We're not ultimately living for this world. We understand that this world is temporary, that this world is a trial, that this world is a test. And that this world is preparation for eternity. And so these are just a few of the things that, that the worldly wisdom tells us about versus what God's wisdom says. So I want you to see what he says next. If you look at me, he says in verse 23, he says this, or verse 22, he says, for Jews demand signs. So if you write in your Bible, you might wanna write, those are the religious people of the day. What he's going to say is God's wisdom in the gospel, which is Christ crucified, it upsets both religious people and rebellious people. They both don't like Christ crucified. And here's why, look. For Jews, those to be the religious people, they demand signs. They want something spiritual. They want something more spiritual than a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And so what you have here is, it says the Jews demand signs. Here's what the Jews thought. The Jews thought the Messiah was gonna come and he was going to bring an immediate earthly political kingdom. And they were wrong and they were upset. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So think about it this way. What's the problem with Christianity for religious people? It's not supernatural enough and it's not the sign they wanted. There's a certain pride in the human heart, right? I will listen to God when. I will give my life to Christ if. That's I want a sign. I've seen versions of that before. I'm mad at God right now because we can't get pregnant. When that happens, I'll give my life to Christ. I'm still single, I'm gonna not give my life to Christ. I'm not giving my life to Christ until so I'm done with college and I've had all my fun and I've sowed my wild oats, then I'll give my life to Christ. It's like I'm in the driver's seat and I will choose the sign and the time and the way in which I will give my life to Christ. And then he says this, for the Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom, right? This, when you see Greeks, think modern man. Think, think the elites of culture. Think the intellectuals. For one, it, for the Jews, it wasn't the cross isn't spiritual enough. And for the uh, Greeks, it's not intellectual enough. It doesn't make enough sense to them. It doesn't, you know, now we, and we believe, by the way, that Christianity is a reasonable faith. That it's not contrary to reason. But what Christians have always said is, I believe so that I might understand. It's a very, very reasonable faith, but there is faith involved in it. It's the eyesight of the soul. Look at verse 23. He says this. So he says, here's what Jews want, and here's what Greeks want. He says this, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, I want you to understand that Christ crucified is an oxymoron to to the people, right? Because Christ means... Anointed, special, chosen by God. Crucified means dead and buried. Criminals' death. It's an, those are two words that people thought should never go together, okay? Like airplane food, okay? <laughs> like Microsoft works. I mean, these, these are words that should never go together. So that's just saying, Christ crucified. Listen, that's the shortest explanation of the gospel in Scripture, two words. Christ crucified. And then look what he says here. He says, uh, but we preach Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling, blocks, stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. So it's the power of God. It's what changes our lives. And the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that the message of the cross is so powerful. Offensive. So he says. He says basically, the modern man thinks it's foolish, and and uh, he says the Jews stumble over it. Now here's what here's why I'm talking about this because I think for all of us we're going to feel with the gospel message the pressure to change the message. I don't know if you've ever felt that, the pressure to change the message about Christ, the pressure to sand off the rough edges of the gospel, to somehow downplay or diminish it. I've seen this right. Back in the day, Larry King Live, I don't know if you've ever seen that show before. It was a long time ago, there was a show called Larry King Live, and, and Larry would always have people on the show, all types of people. And often he would have different pastors on, different big-time pastors, ministers come on his show, and the mic would be in front of them, and the lights would be on them, and the cameras would be pointing at them, and Larry would just ask these questions. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that Muslims are going to heaven? And it was interesting to watch almost every pastor squirm and try to put a bunch of airbags around things and try their best to make the message more palatable to people. You know, instead of saying, listen, yes, Jesus Christ is the only way. Here's why, because of what happened at the cross because there's only one way for sin to be punished and paid for, and it's for all of God's wrath to be poured out on his own son, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to work. I I know what this was like. I know what it's like. I sat across from a Duke student one time. On many occasions, things like this happen. I was sitting across from a Duke student one time, and I'm sharing the gospel with him, and he just stops and he looks at me and goes, you don't believe in Noah's Ark, do you? And I felt like an idiot immediately. I was like, uh, 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 yeah, and he goes, hold on a second. He pulls his phone he goes, I'm gonna look out how many animals are in the world. And I can't remember the number. He goes, you think all these animals are on the ark? I was like, well, listen, a lot of them are fish and they were swimming, okay? <laughs> gotcha. Um, but, I was, but I had this moment where I'm like, okay, I am completely getting pressed on about Noah's ark. I had another moment where I was leading a spiritual leadership study. I called on that because no Duke student wants to go to a Bible study. So, so I was like, hey, I'm gonna do a spiritual leadership study in these fraternities. And I remember I had about 10 guys in this, and in this, in, in, there's like no Christians at Duke, basically. None of these guys are Christians. So I have these 10 guys. They're all fraternity guys. They're in this Bible study, and we're talking through John chapter three. You know, and end of John, chapter. we all love John chapter three, right? For God so loved the world. Well, at the end of the chapter is like, the wrath of God remains on those who don't repent. And we're reading this together. And these guys are smart. And I remember they're looking at me. One of them does. And they're all kind of direct, and they're all kind of bold. And I said, so you're telling me that you believe that if somebody doesn't repent and trust in Christ, they're going to hell. And then they put this caveat in there, because I don't know anyone at Duke that believes this. So are you telling us that all of the Duke students are going to hell? I mean, I remember where I was sitting. Because of the weight of what we believe and the consequences that it has. And the reality of heaven and hell and God and sin and salvation and repentance and the wrath of God, these are all realities. And so Paul says the temptation is going to be for us to try and change the message, but what we have to do is continue to lift up Christ crucified and believe that actually the power is in the offense. We cannot look at people and tell them Christ didn't need to die for your sin. And there's a temptation to do that, especially with all the sexual sin stuff today, right? I'm just picking up the most content, like, right? Martin Luther, by the way, he's a, he's a pastor I talk about a lot. He basically says, if you don't fight the battle where it's hottest, you're not really in the war. And so we have to talk about where is it, okay, all the sexual issues. What do we have to say about all sexual issues? All sexual issues. All sexual issues. We have to say all, right? All sex out of heterosexual marriage is sinful. All of it. And then we have to say this, but here's the good news. It's sinful. It's harmful. Those two always go together, right? Because that's what sin does. Sin dis- dishonors God and destroys the sinner. It does both of those together, always. But we also have to say it's sinful and it's harmful, but here's the good news, it's forgivable. It's forgivable, that's the cross, right? Um, Because let's be honest, guys, the wisdom of the world is not working for people. People are stressed, people are depressed, people have lots of mental health issues, people are anxious. I heard one mental health expert say that if he could get his clients to be freed from guilt, he could send half of his clients home. It's like, well, okay, why do most people feel guilty? Because they're guilty. (laughs) There's a small group of people who have a very sensitive conscience and they feel guilty where they're not guilty. Most people feel guilty and they feel shame because they are guilty and they should be ashamed. That's why. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. It tells you something's wrong. Now, the Christian knows where to put place and position it. We just say, okay, look, I am guilty. It's actually worse than you think. Because I haven't just sinned against you. I've also sinned against God. It's actually cosmic treason. That's what it is. But thankfully, God made a way. And so I can be comfortable, comfortably exposed, I should say, in my sin. Because I know where to put it. And I know who died for it. The world's wisdom isn't working. Again, when I was at Duke, I had a guy come up to me one time. We're leading this, this spiritual leadership study. This is a different attorney. He comes up to me. He says, I want to tell you why I'm in the study. I said, well, why are you in study? the study? These students are very direct. You know. He says, I'm in the study because I'm addicted to pornography. I said, wow. He said, yeah, I'm addicted. He said, I'm actually, I, I, I'm struggling to relate to women now. Um, he tells me all this. He says, I'm starting to question my own sexual orientation. And he says, um, and I talk, try to talk to my dad about it. He said, my dad said it's normal. Don't worry about it. He said, so I just listened to my dad. That's why, you know, I, I thought it was normal. And it's not working and I'm getting even into a darker place, and I need some help. Why? Because the wisdom of the world isn't working. Because the world in its wisdom does not know God. And so Paul says, actually, he says, and it's hard. He said, here's another reason why, why Christianity looks so foolish. Because most Christians are losers. <laughs> most Christians are not impressive people. Look at this. I want you to see this. For consider, verse 26, for consider your calling. That's Conversion. That's you becoming a Christian. For consider your calling, brothers, for not many, not many of you were wise. You weren't great. You weren't real smart. You're not a Christian because you were smarter than other people. You're not a Christian because you're more spiritual. According to the worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. You didn't have a lot of money. You didn't have a lot of influence. You weren't really popular. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not literally, even the things people don't think exist. Basically he's saying, here's how the world treats Christians, as if they don't even exist. As if they are completely irrelevant to the culture. He says, that's it. He said, God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What he's saying here is, God rarely saves the best of the best in the culture. He does, right? Occasionally we do. I remember there was a whole season where I was praying, Lord, would you please save John Mayer and Taylor Swift, okay? (laughs) Because if they could, I mean, they could write the best Christian worship songs ever, okay? Okay? And, and then, you know, Taylor, she's got this influence, and she'll just influence all these girls. And then John Mayer, he, you know, this is back, you know, when he wrote, like, you know, Continuum, when, back when he wrote that really good album. I was like, okay, so, he, you know, and he, he can reach his whole other generation, and it would just be unbelievable. It's like, listen, that's not how God works. What, what God's saying here is, I like to choose, I mean, just to say it bluntly, I like to choose losers. I like to choose the outcast. I like to choose the person that it's so clear that the only reason that uh, that. that that they're having any influences because I'm using them. I'm the coach who ch- always chooses the worst players and then everyone knows I, it's a great coach because I'm going to get the glory. I like to hit straight shots with broken sticks. That's what basically God's saying. And Christians are not, I mean, we, just so you know, I mean, I love our church. We've got an incredible church. Most of us, all of us really basically are ordinary people. I hate to break it to me and to you, okay? Okay. <laughs> We're ordinary, we are average, we are normal people. Now, now, what's happened with some of us, right? This is what happens, actually, and this is the story of Christianity, and this is what's wrong with Christianity, what ha- not, not what's wrong with the Christian faith, what's wrong with Christians, is that oftentimes, Christians, God will save them out of some deep sin, out of some broken marriage, out of some addiction in their life. Um, And and then what happens is they begin to repent, they begin to grow, and they begin to put their life together. And then somewhere along the way, they start thinking, God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. And we forget what God has saved us from. And so look look how he ends chapter one. He says this, but um, he says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I know those are big words. I want to unpack all of them right now. Basically, he says, for the Christian, they look, you look at the cross and you see the wisdom of God and all that Christ has done for you. That what Christians look like, we, before we look like Jesus, we look like people who desperately need Jesus. And he's saying, all right, no, look, he's the wisdom of God. He's so smart, I'm following him, <laughs> right? He, he is the righteousness. He's my perfect record. He's sanctification. He's what's changing me. He's redemption. He's using my past and redeeming me says this, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then I want you to see in chapter two, we're going to go really quickly, but in chapter two, because they're connected, in chapter two, what Paul does is he basically goes from, so chapter one is like the theology of the cross and, and its power. And then chapter two is Paul's personal experience of just emphasizing the cross and trusting the Spirit. Emphasizing the cross and trusting the Spirit. Look what he says. Look at verse one of chapter two. And I when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So here's, here's what he's saying. He, he's like, I didn't come like all of, so in Corinth, there was all these great Greek orators. These, there were all these amazing speakers. And he said, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to you very plainly and very simply and very directly so that you're going to know that it's about the power of God, not about the power of man. And this is such an important concept. By the way, this is good to know. When the the New Testament was written in Greek, there were two Greeks of that day. There was classical Greek, which was for the elites and the really, really smart people, and there was Koine Greek, which Koine Greek, which was for everybody else. And guess what God decided to write the New Testament in? Koine Greek. Guys like John Calvin said, I study to be simple. I wanna share the gospel simply and directly. I remember Billy Graham, there's an interesting story from church history. I know I talk about Billy Graham a lot. Billy Graham, he was speaking at all these, you know, massive conferences and crusades. He eventually gets invited to go speak at Oxford. And he's really nervous. He tells this story later. He's really, really nervous about speaking at Oxford because it's like the smartest of the smarts and everyone's elite and all this kind of stuff. And in, in a providential moment, C.S. Lewis pulls aside Billy Graham. What, what a cool moment in church history. And and C.S. Lewis pulls aside Billy Graham before he speaks at Oxford, and he says, Billy, don't get too sophisticated. Here at Oxford, we're still sinners who need God's grace. And Billy said there was a season in his ministry where he tried to get sophisticated, he tried to get over the intellectual, he tried to do a lot of apologetics, and he said, and I lost the power. I lost the power of simply talking about Christ and him crucified. I mean, think about it, isn't that interesting? Just think about Billy for a second. You know, who would God use to be the greatest preacher in all of human history? A farm boy from North Carolina. Right? He's one of three civilians who had a memorial at the Capitol in all of of American history. He's a farm boy from North Carolina who God said, I'm going to go use him so that everybody knows it's my power and not him. And then look what he says. He says in verse 2, For I decided, it's a conscious decision, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean it's the only thing Paul taught. It meant that it was the sum and the center of everything that he taught. It's what he brought everything back to. He says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul was not an impressive person. We know that from from church history and from tradition. Uh, He had a unibrow, believe it or not. (laughs) Uh, He was very small. Uh, He was very scrawny. He'd been beat up many times. He says other places that he's not a very good speaker. His letters are more powerful than his speaking is. So Paul says this, I I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit. So I trust in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. And of power. We believe in the active, intentional, ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian believes that. Every Christian is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Every church that's biblical is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. We believe the ultimate preacher here at Two Cities Church is the Holy Spirit. We believe that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It's the Holy Spirit who converts, and it humbles us. Because you're like, God, I want you to work. I was talking to a guy recently. Great guy, I just met him. He's he's an older guy, he's super passionate about the Lord, and I'm talking to him, he he says, I got something I want you to pray for me for. I said, what? He said, would you pray for my wife's salvation? I've been praying for her for 20 years to come to Christ. He says, she's a wonderful wife and lady. She just does, her eyes aren't open. He says, So I get on my knees every day and I just ask God, Would you please open her eyes? Would you please let her believe? It's like I'm going to continue to emphasize the cross and I'm going to pray for God to work by his Spirit. Here's what he says so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What you see in a ministry that exalts the cross of Christ and trusts the Spirit, what you see is change lives. That is the mark of gospel ministry. The mark of gospel ministry is not expositional preaching. The gospel, the the mark of gospel ministry is not community groups. The mark of gospel ministry is not kids ministry. The the mark of gospel ministry is not serve one at ten one culture. The mark of gospel ministry is changed and transformed lives. Yeah. At the Weekender, I had I had someone come up to me, and I won't go into too much detail here, but he was he and his wife were sharing a story of of loss that they had had. They had had some loss in their life about six or seven years ago, and he and he looks and you know, we've never met before, but you know this happens every once in a while people feel very close to me, because I I teach, and and they they know me better than I know them, and he said, I've been wanting to tell you something for a while now, and he opens up, and he said, when you were preaching on Galatians chapter one, as you were talking about the gospel, I felt my anger at God released from my heart, and you said some things about God, and how he lost a son on the mission field, and in that moment, I just was not mad at God anymore. And I was able to move forward in my relationship with God. It's like, listen, this is, this is what God does. You exalt the cross of Christ. You trust the Holy Spirit. And lives are changed. It's like everybody's worried about their kids. What are their kids going to We do two things. That's all we can do. We can't keep them safe forever. We can't protect them forever. We can talk a lot about Jesus on the cross and what he's done for sinners. We can pray a lot for him and trust in the Holy Spirit. And that's it. And here's what he says. Yet among the mature, verse 6, we do impart wisdom. Though it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, wisdom. Or sorry, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, that means all of the people you know, in authority, all of the political leaders, all of the religious leaders, uh, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor eye has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him and this is interesting. Here's what he says. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Here's what he's saying. It's kind of confusing. Let me just be very simple about it. He's saying, listen, nobody knows a person's thoughts except that person. I mean, I don't know what you're thinking. I mean, I, right? women are always trying to figure out what men are thinking. And the answer is usually nothing. We're not, no, no. <laughs> no, but, but like with the, we normally don't, we, there's no way I can watch your actions, but really at the end of the day, this is why betrayal is so painful. It's like, oh, I didn't know you were thinking that. We, we, we don't know what another person is thinking ultimately. Only that person does. It says the spirit of that person. When the Bible talks about your spirit, it's the deepest part of you. That's what it is. And he's saying the same way, nobody knows what God is thinking except God's spirit. And God has revealed himself to us. God has forfeited his personal privacy to let himself be known. And he has revealed the cross of Christ. Nobody would have seen it. Nobody would have known the wisdom of God. Think about the wisdom of God, that the hero is going to die for the villains. That God is going to demand a sacrifice and provide the sacrifice. He's going to require a righteous life, and he's going to live that very righteous life that he's going to do something that we think is normal only because we have a Christian worldview. He's going to love his enemies and die for those who are giving him half a peace sign. He's going to give his life for those in direct rebellion to him. It blows the human mind the more you think about it. It's God's wisdom. It says this, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirits, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And you'll notice in verse 13, it talks about that we have these certain words that were taught. When you become a Christian, you get a whole new vocabulary. This is what happens. And then you get a new dictionary for all the vocabulary you had wrong, right? You're like, faith? Faith isn't like some emotional thing. Faith is the eyesight of the soul, Faith is the ability to see the invisible world by the written word of God. That's what faith is. You look and go, God's not a force. That's a goofy definition. God's not distant. God's ultimate and intimate. God has a face. God is personal. And then you get a whole new vocabulary. Like, oh, I didn't know I had to know what the word grace means and the word mercy and the word sin. And then there's some bigger words I have to learn, justification, <laughs> sanctification, glorification, atonement, redemption. This is, right, this is what happens. You get a whole new vocabulary and you begin to hear things in church that you don't hear anywhere else. And here's how he sums it up, verse 14. He says, and the natural person, that's the non-Christian, that's the person who's not spiritually alive. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Basically, have compassion on non-Christians. Don't get mad at them. And I don't mean this in a demeaning way to non-Christians. Non-Christians are blind and they are deaf. So I can't be mad at a non-Christian that he doesn't understand the beauty of a sunset if he's blind, right, right? We can't, we're not mad at blind people for not understanding the beauty of a sunset. We're not mad at deaf people for not understanding the amazing uh, glory and sound of Beethoven symphonies. The problem is not, the problem is they can't hear it. The problem is that they can't see it. God's got to open up their eyes and open up their ears. He says this, verse 15, the spiritual person, that's the Christian, the spiritual person, right? Today, everybody thinks they're spiritual, Right, I'm spiritual because I do yoga. I put my you know, feet behind my head and I'm spiritual. Uh, right, read what people think spiritual is. Spiritual is I look inside at myself. That's not spiritual. Spiritual is I eat vegan, no. Spiritual is I go and I live in Asheville, no. Everybody thinks they're spiritual. It's like, no, that's pagan. You can't be spiritual if you're spiritually dead. Here's what he says. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. What he's saying at the end of the day is the spiritual person is two things. They understand the cross of Christ and they've been born again by the spirit of God. That's the spiritual person. And the cross of Christ is as relevant today as it was 2000 years ago. I don't know if you read this week in the newspaper. In Germany right now, they're bringing a 100 year old man to court. And you go, why are they bringing a 100-year-old man to court? Because in his late teens and early 20s, he was a concentration camp Nazi guard. And there's this whole interesting conversation happening because that was 80 years ago. This guy's 100. They're trying to get him to court in time to convict him for crimes. Why? Because no one forgets. Because every sin must be punished. Because justice must happen. But it's interesting because there's a conversation about bringing this 100-year-old man to court. And one of the conversations is, well, so say he lives to be 105. He probably won't. Say we convict him really quickly. He goes to jail for five years? Doesn't seem fair. You put a bunch of Jews in a gas chamber again again and again and again and again and again, and then you have to, for the last five years of your life, go to jail and that's it. It's like, well, actually the Christian understands, no, 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 no. There's a justice on the other side right? You have to understand this. There's a justice on the other side, and it cries out in our hearts, right? When you see these school shootings, and then the school shooter takes his own life, and everyone goes, is there ever going to be justice? Yes. There's always justice. There's two places we see justice, the cross of Christ or the lake of fire. That's why churches that talk about the cross talk about hell, and churches that don't talk about the cross don't talk about hell because they're connected. What I want to ask you to do is to consider the cross of Christ afresh. Do you need forgiveness? Look to the cross of Christ. Do you need to understand the sinfulness of sin? Look to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ always tells us two things. God loves me a lot more than I ever knew. He sent his only son. And I'm a lot more sinful than I ever knew. God had to kill his son in my place for my sins. I'm more sinful than I ever knew. I'm more loved than I ever knew. Would you... In this next season of your life, would you do two things? Would you be courageous enough to emphasize the cross of Christ? Would you be humble enough to depend and trust on the Spirit of God? Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. Strengthen our hands, Lord. We want to trust in the Spirit of God. We want to emphasize the cross of Christ, Lord. We want to be a place of transformed and changed lives, Lord. I pray that we would see many baptisms, many changed and transformed lives in our city and in our church. Because we emphasize the cross of Christ, we trust the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.